this week on the Back Table podcast. I think we have to individualize the surgical approach based on our clinical findings and the imaging studies. Endoscope is here to stay, so it's really a very useful tool and the instruments are improving so we can use them around the corners. So I think it's there for the long term. And then in cholestatoma, the long-term surveillance is absolutely essential. Sometimes we can see recurrence as late as five to even eight years down the line, even longer. And so we do need to see these patients in the long term. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the BioDesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now back to the show. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT. Today, I have a very special guest. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gauri Mankekar. She's an assistant professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and neurotology at Louisiana State University in Shreveport. She completed her medical school and residency at Seth G.S. Medical College and King Edward Memorial Hospital, Mumbai, India, and also received her PhD at the University of Würzburg in Germany. She completed her fellowship in advanced otology and skull-based surgery at Louisiana State University at LSU HSC. She's here today to talk to us about cholesteatoma. Welcome to the show, Gauri. How are you? I'm good, Gopi. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. Can you first tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. So I'm faculty, as you mentioned, at the ENT department at LSU Health Shreveport and Oshner Medical Center. And my practice includes adult and pediatric patients with chronic ear disease, cholestatoma, hearing loss, and vestibular disorders. So we're going to talk today about a pretty big topic. We're going to talk about cholestatoma. But before we get in sort of to the clinical nuts and bolts, can you go over the different types of cholestatoma when you're discussing it with a family or maybe a medical student? Yes. So cholestatoma is traditionally classified as congenital cholestatoma and acquired cholestatoma. Congenital cholestatoma is typically seen in children and accounts for about 2% of all cholestatomas. And they develop from embryonic rest of squamous cell. And in the middle ear, they are typically found in the front or the anterior superior part of the middle ear. Acquired cholestatomas have traditionally been further divided into primary cholestatomas and secondary types. The primary cholestatomas develop in the attic or the pars flaccida and are associated with perforations of that part, whereas the secondary cholestatomas typically develop in the middle ear through the pars tensor retractions or perforations. And so as we now talk about how patients present to you, we 
think of traditionally cholesteatoma as painless, chronic, draining ear. Are those some of the most common symptoms that you see? And does the type of cholesteatoma present differently in your experience? Yes. So I have seen in practice and in my experience, they present a little differently. So for example, congenital cholestatomas are incidental findings. Either a pediatric otolaryngologist will notice it when they take up a child for either ear microscopy or ceremony removal or even a myringotomy. And they are seen as just white masses behind an intact eardrum. On the other hand, the cholestatomas, which are typically seen in adults, sometimes also in children, they present as chronic draining ears and foul-smelling drainage from the ears, hearing loss, and the drainage can wax and wane. Sometimes it's a lot and sometimes it's scanty. And so that's typically the presentation, although sometimes there could be an acute inflammatory phase where they present with some bleeding from the ear and there could be pain associated. So hearing loss is the main issue with the drainage. And I wanted to ask you, how often do you see your patients with cholesteatoma that present with tinnitus or vertigo? So with children, they typically cannot tell you about tinnitus or vertigo, but the adults, they do present often. They will not mention it. It's only on inquiry that they will talk about the tinnitus. The vertigo, though, if there are complications, then yes, some of them do present with vertigo and they will talk about it. And in terms of risk factors, and it kind of goes to the types of cholesteatomas, when I think of the primary acquired, I think of eustachian tube dysfunction, which could be due to different reasons, including craniofacial abnormalities with something more, you know, anatomic to what other risk factors for, and we can just kind of go through the risk factors for the acquired primary, acquired secondary, and are there any risk factors for congenital? I know sometimes, is it okay to say it's just bad luck? Yes, I think so. (laughs) With congenital cholestatoma, it's uh, quite often bad luck. And what about, can we go into some of the risk factors for the other acquired Yes, for the acquired cholestatomas, it could be, uh, as you mentioned, eustachian tube dysfunction, but it's also cleft craniofacial malformations, Turner syndrome, immune deficiencies with recurrent otitis media. Those are typically the risk factors for uh, acquired cholestatoma. In terms of when the patient presents to you or if it's a child with their parents, on your history, what are some of the questions that are always on your checklist? Or let's say if you're with a resident or a medical student, you're like, oh, but make sure you always ask about this. What are some of those questions for you? Well, I'll always ask them about the duration of symptoms. And I'll ask them, was it an acute onset and whether they have had it for a long time? In children, I will definitely ask them about failed hearing screens in school and the issue that they have communicating. And typically, a parent will tell me about they're listening to the TV with the highest volume and so and nobody in the house likes it. So that's one of the most important indicators to me that hearing loss is a big issue. And in terms of kids, what percent of your practice are cholesteatomas in children after a history of ear tubes? What percent do you think makes up that pie? I would say about five, five percent or so. Okay. So it's a pretty, I mean, and you're a referral center, so you're going to get more, but it is something that you're seeing. Yes. I'm not seeing as many, but there is definitely a history of P-tubes, multiple sets of P-tubes, 
But when I typically see them, there is no tube in place. And I do see ingrowing squame through the perforations where the P-tube was, but it's difficult to associate that as being uh, related to the P-tube. It could be just that the eardrum did not heal and it's trying to heal and that's how the squame is trying to grow, but it's not growing in towards the edges, it's growing inwards and so In terms of differences in presentation in your children and adults, with kids, we think about school, we think about grades, adults, I think about work, but tell me what you see as some of the big differences in presentation. So with children, typically, they will present with acute presentation. Sometimes I have seen more mastoid abscesses in children compared to adults, and they can also present with meningitis and facial palsy. In adults, I haven't seen as many presenting with those complications, although some of them could present with meningitis and also with vertigo, so labyrinthitis, for example, which is rarely labyrinthitis in children. I haven't seen many. In terms of now just kind of getting into the history, I feel like clostiotoma is something that we're taught that this is a physical exam, like you're going to see it on exam and it's a clinical diagnosis. I guess first, my question is, what do you typically, and it it might depend on the type, and you kind of talked about this with the congenital clusteotomas, you know, behind the intact drum, anterior superior quadrant, the white pearl. What do you see with your acquired clusteotomas, depending on if it's primary or secondary? So the first thing would be uh, profuse drainage in the ear, and it's usually foul smelling. It could be greenish in color. And once I clear that drainage, then I might see squamous debris either in the middle ear through a perforation or an attic perforation or a pars flaccida perforation with a lot of debris. Sometimes I will see granulation, inflammatory tissue, and that bleeds on touch, and it's somewhere along the bone, and there could be a marginal perforation associated with it. And then sometimes through that perforation, I can also see the incudostapedial joint if it's present, sometimes just the stapes head, the eustachian tube opening, and very rarely even the round window membrane or the niche. Do you usually do the exam with microscopy? Do you ever, is there ever time where you're like, you know, maybe I need to get a better look with otoendoscopy or do you have a preference? So right now in my practice, it's mainly microscope in the clinic. And so it's only in the OR that we are using endoscopes. But in the clinic, we are only using the microscope. I find in kids, to get an exam, it can be pretty challenging. Yes, yes. (laughs) And putting a scope in it isn't always, it could potentially hurt them more depending on the kid as well, but sometimes kind of getting around the corners. Any tips or tricks in terms of getting a good exam? Because sometimes it's hard to tell, is it just wax on the drum? Is it a retraction pocket? Is the granulation I'm seeing, you know, I, I touch it, it bleeds and that's it, game over. Like I can't tell if there's a perf. How do you troubleshoot some of that? And every once in a while, I've had to tell families, like, this is a pretty bad infection, the granulation tissue, and sort of how long it's been going on for. These are the things I'm worried about, and I might include clostitoma in my differential, but I'm not 100% sure. So what tips and tricks do you have for a good exam, or if you're not sure at what you're looking at? Yes, children can be very challenging, as you mentioned. You got to gain their trust because it's going to be one of many exams. Absolutely. And if you hurt the child once, they will never trust you again. So yes, it's very challenging. So that's the first thing I try. I try to be friends with the child and then see if they'll let me examine. If they don't, and if there's a lot of drainage that I have to clean out, sometimes I would wait until the second visit. 
So because my first visit is just trying to get the child to know me and trust me. And so I would typically give them antibiotic ear drops and see them or maybe in a week or two weeks. So I have gained their trust and also the drainage is a little less and it helps me to clean out the ear. Very rarely I may have to propose a kid, but kids are mini adults. And so if you gain their trust, they do let you clean their ears and it is easier to see inside. And as you mentioned, it's difficult to differentiate granulation tissue with an infected tube in place versus a cholestatoma. And so it's very important to diagnose if there is a cholestatoma hiding behind it. With kids who have craniofacial malformations, especially with Down syndrome kids, those are the kids that I would like to take under anesthesia and examine them. And so I do individualize the exam depending on the situation. I'm glad you brought that up because our children with Down syndrome, every once in a while, uh, it's a difficult exam. Sometimes a child with autism, with a chronic draining ear, there's concerns of speech. The hearing has been down for months now. We can't get it dry. And so going to the OR, it happens it, where we just, it's an exam. And the exam, though, if we don't get it right, we either aren't going to be able to treat it or we're missing the elephant yes, absolutely. <laughs> in the mm -hmm. ear, in the room that can cause more problems. And so I used to kick myself like, I can't get the exam. But then it's like, okay, it's okay. There's going to be a handful of kids and they don't all have to have Down syndrome autism. It might just be the four-year-old that just won't let you in their ear or whatnot. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I feel better <laughs> about that. I feel better about that now. Oh, goodness. All right. So in terms of, let's say you do see a clusteotoma. Let's say the ear is a little inflamed. That's your diagnosis. What are your next steps in terms of cooling it down and then sort of your workup, like in terms of audiogram, imaging, things like that? I will typically get a culture from that drainage and culture-directed antibiotics because most often the kids that I see have already been treated by their primary care pediatrician or a pediatric otolaryngologist. And so when I'm seeing the kid, I want to be sure it's culture-directed. And so that's what I start with. I do start with an antibiotic eardrop and then the oral antibiotics as soon as I get the culture results back. But I will get an audiogram. Uh, if a child is older, then uh, just a pure tone audiogram. And then if I'm suspecting a CT scan, then I will get imaging studies. So that would be my primary workup towards diagnosing the patient. In terms of the eardrops, do you prefer just ciprofloxacin with Dax? It's expensive sometimes. Do you end up then switching to, is floxacin just as okay? Or how strongly do you feel about having the steroid combo? So my patients are typically Medicaid patients and they can't afford the drops. And I have found that compliance is better if I just have them use the ofloxacin drops. So I just go with that. And if I have to use steroids, then I would give them as a separate. So it would be a prednisone or dexamethasone separately. That works out much cheaper. And so it's less about ideal versus what's practical. Yeah. In terms of the steroid, is that like an ophthalmic yes. a, a drop that you yes. use? And is, is, what's the percentage? Is it just dexamethasone? Is there a certain percentage for that? I think it's 0 0.01, but I may have to look it up. <laughs> no, it's a good trick because I know we used to sometimes use siloxin, which I think was kind of like the ophthalmic cipodex, yes. which is a little bit cheaper as well. And then there was the Otovel, the one with the um, ampules. Yes. 
but the cost is cost prohibitive, whether it's Medicaid or commercial and obviously uninsured, and it can range. But we can get into that on a different <laughs> podcast. Yes. One of my residents found out he was prescribing um, Ciprodex and I said, OK, check out the prices and then you'll know. <laughs> yeah. In terms of oral antibiotics, when I saw granulation tissue, I would definitely do some orals, but I wasn't culturing just with the hopes that if I could clear it with the suction or every once in a while, if it was significant thick drainage and I couldn't suction the ear, I'd have the families, you know, the baby blue bulb syringe yes. that kind of flares out yes. for the nose. I would tell them, I mean, because it flares out, I don't think they're going to be able to push it far deep, but I would say, hey, you have about five to seven millimeters and you can try to clear your ear and get the drops in. And so hopefully with oral toilet, but in terms of culture directed antibiotics, what would be common microorganisms that you would find on your culture? So sometimes it is pseudomonas. And especially if they have an infected PE tube, I do get pseudomonas. And then often it is just a staphylococcus or conibacterium. If it's just conibacterium, the antibiotic sensitivity doesn't matter as much. Anything works. But yes, but if it turns out to be pseudomonas, then I have to be more vigilant about giving the culture-directed antibiotics and for a longer duration. And do you do like oral Cipro or what do you normally... What's kind of like the five antibiotics you end up having to? So for pseudomonas, it could be uh, ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin versus augmentin or amoxicillin clavulinic acid. Okay. In terms of the audiogram, every once in a while, and especially in maybe the congenital clustiotomas that are caught relatively early, sometimes the audiograms look pretty good, like normal. Do you find that too in clustiotoma? Like it's maybe a mild PTA of... 26 to 30. <laughs> yes. And then you do surgery and it's like, uh, how often do you see where the hearing, it's maybe a little lost, but it doesn't look too bad. Yes. And that is so amazing about cholestatoma because they are destructive, but sometimes they creep around the ossicles and so they don't destroy the ossicles. And so you may find, especially in congenital cholestatoma, you might find intact ossicles. And that's why the hearing is almost near normal. But the other thing about cholestatomas is that they transmit sound. And so that's what causes us to believe there is no hearing loss. And so I will advise parents in these situations, families as well, that clearing the disease may worsen the hearing loss. And so there is an informed discussion before I recommend surgery, discussing that the surgery and clearing the disease he worsen the hearing loss because the disease is what is helping them to hear. Yeah. And that's a difficult discussion. Yeah, no. And we're going to get into surgery because you're right. The goals of surgery, the expectations, how many looks. And for me, obviously, I have a soft spot for kids. But having one side of your hearing all of a sudden now moderate, whatever it is, post-op, depending on what you're able to do in the first surgery, it's a whole school year. That's a six months of a school year. So grades and <laughs> so... But going back to the audio, are there any other like red flags that you see, whether it's tympanometry, although sometimes, again, in a congenital, it's going to be type A temp or with the word discrim, anything else that you've noticed on audios that you're like, oh, clusiotomas also can show this? So on tympanometry, I might say an AD curve, which might indicate ossicular discontinuity. Speech discrim on that side may be lower. 
So yes, if the child, especially this is important in children, if they are able to do an entire audiogram with speech discrim, we may be able to get all that data. But sometimes it's uh, difficult to get all that in a child, but in adults for sure. In adults, we would get the pure tones, the speech audiometry and the TIMS, and that would help us to come to a decision. So if you have a child or a patient that you're not able to get a good hearing test on, not even ear, let's say you just get a sound field, not even ear specific, but you can see the exam. Do you consider an ABR preoperatively or maybe before the time of surgery to get a baseline or I don't know, is there a role for that? I have and I do sometimes. So especially in children who need an ear exam under anesthesia to confirm cholestatoma, I will get an ABR at the same time. And that gives me some baseline audiometric data before I go ahead with any kind of other intervention. Yeah. And again, I know we're about to talk about surgery in a second, but do you ever, because, you know, we think of cholestatoma traditionally as it's a surgical disease. There's no way around it. Do you ever tell the family, like, listen, we don't have a great hearing test, but we're going to plan for an ABR for the first 30, 40 minutes and then plan for surgery under the same anesthetic? Or do you ever have to do anything like that when you don't have good audiometric data? Or how important is that preoperatively? I think that's very important preoperatively, just to have some baseline data. And when possible, I have done that just so I know what amplification the child may need. And this is, as I said, more important in children. And in terms of imaging, when you consider getting a CT and is there ever a role for MRI or CT with contrast? So in my practice, I will get a CT scan if clinically I have confirmed there is cholestatoma. I would recommend an MRI for patients where I see dehiscence or attenuation of the tegmen and I suspect an encephalocele. And for revision cases or where uh, I want to know more about recurrence of cholestatoma, I do get a DWI MRI. I have not ordered a CT with contrast at any point. I don't think it has a role to play in cholestatoma, and so I avoid that. In terms of CT, what are you looking for? So do you have like a system that you use like, okay, I'm suspecting cholestatoma, so I'm going to look at Tegman, you know, next, next, next. How do you go through it? Yeah, so on a CT scan, I would typically start with the ear canal. So is there any osteitis? And then go forward into the middle ear. If the middle ear shows any destruction of the scutum, ossicles, and then into the tegmen, look at the tegmen, and then move back and see what about the sigmoid plate? Is it attenuated? Is there any adhesions there? Cellularity of the mastoid. Is it very cellular mastoid? Is it not pneumatized? And then opacification. What's the extent of the opacification? I would also like to look at the lateral canal and the facial nerves. So is there a fistula on the lateral semicircular canal or is the facial nerve dehiscent and at what point? So it kind of gives me a map to figure out which way to plan for the surgery itself, but also for the hurdles that we may face. And do you, this is probably a silly question, but I always go from like top, like superior to inferior on axials. A, do you look at coronal or axial first or does it matter to you? And are, are there certain findings that are better on certain cuts? How do you like to do that? So I start with typically axial CT scans. And on an axial CT scan, I will start from below upwards. 
and then uh, look at each slice and examine each of those landmarks I mentioned. And then I will look at the coronals and figure out the level of the tegmen and also if there is attenuation of the tegmen and then also look at the lateral semicircular canal and then the vertical facial and then follow it uh, into the tympanic segment. So yes, I follow actual first coronal sec. Yeah, I think when I initially came out of my training in my early years, I was always looking at the axial first, but then I realized, wait a second, the skull base, the scutum, some of the sort of big clues are on my coronals. That's actually, I need to get better at that. And so then I was like, okay, because initially coming out, I was like, it's all about the lateral canal and the facial nerve. Yes. And so I tended to, it took me some time to be like, actually, the coronals got a lot of information on it too. And you can correlate it. Sometimes the tegment defects are seen on an actual. And you can correlate it with the coronal scan. And it's good to know at the level of it. And so sometimes I will see them simultaneously. Okay. So now we're planning for surgery. Do you do endoscopic and microscopic? And if so, how do you decide which technique you're going to use for the surgery? So the imaging will typically give me some idea about how to plan the surgery in addition to, of course, the clinical findings. But if it's a very pneumatized mastoid and it's an extensive cholestatoma, I just start with the microscope. Versus if it's a congenital cholestatoma, then I will have the endoscope ready. So it kind of depends on the extent of disease clinically and on imaging. I do have an endoscope on standby because even in the cases where it's extensive, an endoscope is good to look around corners. And so it helps. In terms of, you know, you said extensive, sometimes it's hard to tell because the scan's all gray. The mastoid's all gray. The middle ears are all gray. Unless, I guess, you see bony destruction in the mastoid air cells. Like, what, how can you tell what's going to be extensive preoperatively? So clinically, if there is destruction of the posterior canal wall, that gives me an indication that that cholestatoma is going to extend into the mastoid. And so I may have to do a canal wall down, which is probably already partly done by the disease itself. And so in those cases, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that's very helpful. That makes sense. And then we touched on this before in terms of overall goals with the family and creating a safe year. That was always the first goal in close to term surgery is creating a safe year. How do you explain that to families and sort of the process of the overall treatment? Because there's so many, you know, there could be a second look. There could be maybe not a second look. There's disease surveillance. How do you explain all of this? Because this is really sort of a bomb almost, right? As a parent or as a patient, there's a lot that it's called chronic year for a reason. So how do you how do you go into it? Yes. So it's a big discussion preoperatively. I start off by asking the patient, what is their main concern? Is it the drainage or the hearing loss? And most often it is the drainage that they are bothered by. And so rendering it as a safe ear, removing the disease is always primary. And I explain to them that in case we can find a good plane and ossicles can be either replaced or we can do something about it, we will address the hearing loss at the same time. And that helps kind of ease the situation and the conversation. So, but the main aim and the primary goal I emphasize is always getting all the disease out at the first surgery. 
Are there any questions or themes that patients have that you found? It's like most patients, this is the same thing that most patients are concerned about. Anything like that in your practice? Well, they want to know whether it's a tumor. For example, they'll always ask me, is it malignant? And so that's a big discussion too, to explain to them that it's just a destructive, benign lesion, but it's because it's destructive, it's likely to cause a lot of complications. And that's a big discussion because they are mostly worried about it going into the brain. And of course, they know that it will recur. Most of them are very accepting about that fact. So when it comes to discussing how many looks or how much surveillance they will need, most of them accept it, that they will need surveillance, long-term surveillance. And so that's an easier discussion. In terms of recurrence, how do you tell families? Do you give them a percentage or high likelihood? How do you explain that part to them? I try to keep it open because with cholestatoma, it's difficult to predict. And so I try to explain to them that cholestatoma can recur. It's a little bit of skin in the wrong place that starts to grow and it can grow even after we've done the surgery. And so they have to be aware of the fact that we just have to keep looking and hope that it doesn't come back. But in case it does, then we are here to take care of it. No, I 100% agree because I think the expectations, especially up front and knowing the disease process, I think that's important for the overall goals and expectations on both ends to be very clear, just because these are very challenging. And sometimes it's like, why did you have the best surgery in the whole world? And yet maybe a year and a half later, here we are. So anyways, as we get into surgery, tell me what's your OR setup like? Do you go 180? Do you go 90? Like what's your prep and setup like? Because everybody, it seems like, especially neurotologists are very particular about even how the towels are folded. Completely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) So yes, I do most of them under general anesthesia. And so it's, I turn 180 and then reverse Trendelenburg in most cases and There's always a head ring or a donut and facial nerve monitor in all cases. And then we use 1% lidocaine with epinephrine for injection. And as I explained to the residents, I just do the same thing every time. And as you mentioned, like with the towels, it's the same thing every time. So I always inject the postural, even if I don't plan to do a postural incision. It helps with the ear block. And I think it to some extent, it also improves the postoperative pain. And then also in the incisura and the posterior ear canal. So that is the basic injection. And then the patient is prepped, draped. And as you mentioned with the towels, it's a specific way of draping the towels, of course. <laughs> and then we start with the look inside the ear. And to clear out the ear, sometimes we use saline irrigation to clean out the drainage and confirm our findings. So that's very important for me to confirm my findings and make sure that there is a cholestatoma still in existence. And then we inject the ear canal in four quadrants. So 12, 3, 6 and 9, again with epinephrine 1 in 100,000 with the 1% lidocaine. So that's what we start. So it's the same 1% Lido, 1 in 100 of Epi pre-prep mm-hmm. and then after the prep. Yes. And do you have a different syringe or needle or anything like that for when you're doing your posterior canal injection before and then when you're under the microscope? 
Yes. So for the pre-prep injection, we use 5cc syringe and with a 27-gauge needle. And for the post-prep injection, we use a 3cc syringe with a 27-gauge needle. So it's a different syringe and different amount. And then what do you always want on your back table? What is your techno? Oh, it's a Dr. Munkekar case. I got to have this. What, what, do you, what do you like instrument-wise? Yeah, instrument-wise, I like a duckbill, a round knife, a gimmick, a rosin needle, and the suctions. The French uh, gauge 3, 5, and 7. So that's the basic. <laughs> that's the basics. Yes. And then in terms of other hemostasis, do you just stick with your local injections or do you use anything else for hemostasis during the case? Yes. So I do use gel foam soaked in epinephrine. And in endoscopic cases, I will use the neuropathy pledgets, again, soaked in epinephrine, one in 1,000. One in 1,000. Yes. Okay. And then in terms of raising the tympanometal flap, any tips for where your cuts are going to go? Because just raising that flap, well, I think it seems like from what I've seen and the little bit of chronic ear experience I had earlier on in my career can make or break sort of how that case can go. Absolutely right. Because when we make incisions for the tympanometal flap, if it's too lateral, the flap is too thick and it can obstruct view. And then if it's a cholestatoma case, you want to have a wider exposure of the bone. And so I will individualize that incision instead of the routine 12. I might make a more anterior incision to expose more of the lateral attic wall. And then also the inferior incision, I would make it maybe at five or six. So that will depend upon the location of the perforation and the cholestatoma. So let's say, for example, it's a marginal perforation, but it involves the you know, from somewhere between 11 and let's say inferiorly about four or something like that. So then the incision would have to be more anterior. The inferior incision would have to be anterior. I got you. So you kind of have to rotate it, yes. kind of depending on exactly where you're going to be working. Yes. And you're right. If the flap is too long, that can be a problem. But if it's too short, that can be a problem too, because it can fall in. Yes. <laughs> I've had experience with that too. And it contracts. So the shorter flap contracts and so it leaves your bone exposed. And so that's a problem too. Yeah. In terms of you're starting to raise it, and do you have any tricks or tips or what do you find that helps you, especially when you're with a resident or the fellow in terms of getting into the middle ear? So I like to raise the flap with a round knife. And while I'm raising it, I will not use the suction on the flap. So it has to be on the round knife. And that way it clears my vision as well as helps me to elevate the flap without ripping into it. And so it's very important that the suction is used minimally, but it's used on the round knife. And I try to train my residents to do that because we have this tendency, oh, there is blood here. And we try to suction on the flap and invariably the flap will tear. In terms of, let's say you have raised your flap, you've entered the middle ear and you have identified, you have a decent plane, right? You've, you've gone in, but now you're getting to the cholesteatoma. Sometimes there's a nice plane and the flap comes right off and it's just like, you don't want everybody cheering yet, but like it's, it's exciting, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do though when it starts to get stuck or it sticks to the flap? Like you're raising it, but then it's like, wait a second, 
Is that something that you would have prepared for in the beginning at that first look? Or how do you continue your plane off of it? Well, it's a little bit, I would compare it to a neck dissection. So uh, let's say a lymph node is stuck and it's difficult to find a plane in a particular spot. Then I will look for a plane a little bit away from it and get to it. And this is especially so in marginal perforations and when there are granulations. So there is osteitis and so there is often no plane that we can find between the cholestatoma and the tympanic membrane remnants or edges. And so we have to go beyond that particular spot, sometimes inferior, sometimes superior, to find a plane. And usually we are able to find it. So can't do it at one spot. Create a wider dissection, go further out. Correct. Do you find that and that does that then eventually help you get that stuck part off or do you end up having to take some of that drum that's stuck on the cholesteatoma with the cholesteatoma? So sometimes the cholesteatoma is part of the, your drum. And so those are the times when you have to get it off because uh, it will recur if you leave it behind. So it's almost like the squame has uh, inverted and formed part of the tympanic membrane. And in those cases, I will take it off. And do you just get like a rosin needle? How do you, what's your technique? Yeah, so I will use Bellucci scissors and sharp cut the edges because sometimes the rosin may not be able to get off without tearing more than necessary. So it's a little difficult to get the right amount off. And then tell me how you handle some of the hard, difficult areas before we get into spaces, maybe just around the ossicles. In what situation do you have to raise your flap off of the malleus or how do you decide when you have to take the head of the malleus? And it, I realize some of it's just extent of the disease process, but is that something that it's more of decision making as you go along or are you able to kind of predict in sometimes just based on your exam, like, hey, we're going to be having to go pretty anterior superior and I'm not going to be able to see everything because of the head of the malleus? So it's both. I would, uh, in a congenital cholestatoma, for example, I know it's going to be anterior superior. And so there is a likelihood that I might have to take the tympanic membrane off the malleus. In an attic cholestatoma, the malleus head may already be destroyed. But in other cases, I will go along. And as I find the disease, I may have to, for example, dislocate the incudostapedial joint, take off the incus if there is cholestatoma medial to it. Or let's say there is cholestatoma on the tensor tendon, in which case I may have to cut the tensor tendon to get anterior to it. So yes, so in those cases, I will have to go along as I do the surgery. And then tell me about some of the other harder to reach. Let's say you're not drilling yet, you're not in the mastoid yet, or let's say you're doing endoscopic. Any tips or tricks as the cholestatoma goes superior, posterior, or superior anterior? So I use angled instruments to reach these difficult-to-reach areas. I will, for example, use a right-angle pick or a crap tree or a gimmick to reach those areas. I also use a lot of irrigation, and sometimes it dislodges the debris and helps me to see better. Also clears up blood clots, and so it's a nice way to get the hydro dissection, as I call it, and help clean out these hard-to-reach areas. Is that how you also clear, you know, if you have disease, maybe in the sinus tympani, are you using angled instruments, angle scopes at that time, or if it's super anterior in the mesotympanum, or if there is more air cells inferiorly in the hypotympanum? Yes. 
So I will use a 30 degree. I haven't ever used a 45, but I do use a 30 degree endoscope to look around the corners and the sinus tympani and especially in the supratubal recess. Those are really hard to reach. And so I will look with an endoscope. Do you have any tricks for taking the matrix off the foot plate or, you know, if it's there's a lot that seems to be around the, the stapes? Now, that is very sticky sometimes. The foot plate can be a really challenging because you want to avoid rocking it and causing any sensory neural hearing loss. So if I'm able to find a plane and safely remove it, I will attempt it. Um, there are times when I'm not successful, I will leave it. If I even have a, a slight suspicion that I may be rocking the footplate, then I do leave the cholestatoma behind on the footplate. In those cases where there is just a posterior crust, so there is a remnant of a posterior crust and sometimes that little crust has squame on it and getting that off can be very challenging. So those are the cases where I'll definitely uh, plan for a second look surgery. In your surgery, you're using cold dissection. Do you ever use laser mm. or is that just going to blow a bunch of cholesteatoma everywhere? I haven't used lasers, so I don't have much experience using lasers in cholestatoma. Because that might just make it spread more. Yeah. And also, I think the, I mean, I don't have the experience, but I think it could cause some charring and make it more difficult to identify debris, um, squame. In terms of the sputum, how do you know when you need to take some of the sputum down and how much you need to? What's that decision making like? I start by curating the sputum. So I already know from the imaging that it could be small cholestatoma restricted to the attic. And in those cases, just curating the sputum will help me to see beyond that cholestatoma. And if I can visualize it, then that's all I will need to do. But sometimes I will follow it. And in a technique like inside out, I will follow that cholestatoma from the attic and then backwards into the additus. So it depends on whether the cholestatoma is going back into the mastoid. And do you usually like like a curette? I start with the curette. And if I find that the cholestatoma is more extensive, then I might use a drill. Any tips or tricks for matrix that is on the lateral canal or where it's on the facial nerve or if the facial nerve is slightly the bone around it's thin, the monitors are going off? How do you handle those? Yeah, so I think the imaging would have shown me that there is dehiscence of the facial nerve and also of the lateral canal fistula. So it's kind of already in my mind that I will be encountering this. If it's easy to find a plane, I will elevate it with blunt dissection. But in case, on, especially on the facial nerve, if the monitor is really going berserk, I will avoid. So that's one spot that I may leave the squame on. On the lateral canal, though, if there is a fistula, then I will elevate it and then put a perichondrium or bone dust and close the fistula. In terms of having to convert to like canal wall down? Yes. You mentioned a lot of times the posterior canal is already being eaten away with the cholesteatoma. If you have to leave some on the lateral canal or the facial nerve, do you convert then at that time? Are there other reasons or when do you have to switch to canal wall down? So if I see any tegment dehiscence or sigmoid sinus dehiscence, those are the other indications where I would consider canal wall down. 
or if it's a very deep mastoid tip and very cellular mastoid with cholestatoma in each and every one of those air cells. So I would consider a canal wall down. And then let's say you started endoscopic. Mm -hmm. What are reasons where you are like, you know what, we need to just convert to microscopic? Because for some of us, we'll just keep pushing and just keep, I'm going to sit, you know, and here we are two hours later and not much has been accomplished. What are your thresholds to make you just go ahead and switch? So if I were to see that the cholestatoma is extending into the additus, I'm following the cholestatoma. I have already tried to clear it in from the lateral attic and epitympanum, but now I find that it's going beyond that. Then I will just convert to a microscope. A limited cholestatoma endoscopic is easier, but if it's a little bit more extensive, at least right now, I'm not comfortable doing it endoscopically. And then in terms of in the OR, how do you decide, let's say the cholestatoma is out, it looks good. Who are the patients you're going to go ahead and do your OCR and say, okay, we're just going to do it as a single stage. And who are the patients that you're going to stage them? And is this a decision that's pretty much made preoperatively for you? Or are there findings in the OR that make you change that from a single to a double stage? So I have already counseled the patients and family that they may need a second stage, but intraoperatively, if I find that there is no cholestatoma covering the ossicles or there's no cholestatoma medial to the ossicles, then I will consider doing OCR at the same time. But if I find that there is cholestatoma somewhere around medial to the malleus head or let's say the incus is completely covered or the stapes is covered, then I would like to wait, especially in cases where there is cholestatoma on the foot plate. Those are the cases where I will not put in a torp to reconstruct at the same stage. Does age in a child or does pediatric versus adult ever matter? Or is it really how extensive is the cholestatoma? For me, it's more the extent of the cholestatoma and how severe it is. And then in terms of rebuilding the drum or the scutum, how do you usually like to rebuild those areas? What do you like to use? So I will use either temporalis fascia or cartilage or perichondrium or composite cartilage perichondrium. So it will depend on the case. If I have to reconstruct the scutum, it will be with the cartilage, either tragal or conchal. And if there is retracted eardrum preoperatively, then I will use cartilage to reconstruct the eardrum. But if there is good middle-ear space, then I will use temporalis fascia. So I kind of individualize depending on the findings. And then in terms of potential complications, what are things that you counsel the families on and things that you do in the OR to prevent them? So I think the most important complication that I counsel families about is facial nerve injury and the cauda tympani nerve injury. So taste, sensation, and then injury to the tegmen, meningitis, dizziness, of course, hearing loss, and wound infections postoperatively. So these are the main things that we discuss preoperatively. And the way we prevent it, of course, is perioperative antibiotics for the wound infection, facial nerve monitoring intraoperatively, very fine dissection around the cauda tympani nerve, avoiding stretching the nerve, and sometimes if there's cholestatoma completely covering the nerve, it's difficult to keep the nerve, the cauda tympani. So that's a challenge. And then avoiding the hearing loss. So as far as possible, 
very gentle dissection around the ossicles, avoiding drilling with the incus in place, and then not rocking the foot plate. So every step is important. And I think as one of my residents said, caressing the ossicles. <laughs> That's good. Haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Post-op, do you have them on drops? Do you have them wait? What's your dryer precautions? Do you do orals? And how long do you have dryer precautions or straining precautions and things like that? Yeah, so straining precautions for about two weeks and weight precautions also for about two weeks. But then water precautions for three months, especially in summer because everybody wants to swim. And so we want to avoid any kind of infections and I see them at two weeks post-op and then again three months post-op and then follow every six months. If it's a canal wall down cavity, I might see them every four months. And then at approximately the one year post-op, I will get a DWI MRI to confirm if there is any recurrence. And then antibiotic ear drops, I will have them use for about a month post-operatively, mainly to have the packing or gel foam in the ear dissolved. I don't like to remove the gel foam because I might accidentally suction the graft. So I continue the ear drops for about a month. When do you get an audio? Do you get an audio at like three months or? At the three month point? Yes, I do get an audio at the three month point. If you have to do a second stage, when are you planning for that? So somewhere after the MRI. So let's say we did a one year MRI. I would consider doing it sooner if the child started, especially, and this is so more in children, if they started to have foul-smelling drainage earlier, then I would try to go in earlier. So maybe around the eight months to one year. And then let's say it looks good. Do you get longer-term surveillance? Do you get MRIs again at like year three, year five? Like how far out and how frequent do you have to keep getting imaging for clostiotoma? in your experience? Or what do you do in your practice? I don't know if there's guidelines for this or not yet. Yes. So I do the MRI for the first one year and then clinically follow them. And if I suspect if there's drainage, if there is any suspicion, then I would repeat the MRI. But otherwise, I try to get it at the three-year point. And then if it's still clear, then just follow them clinically. And these are going to be lifetime patients that come at least once a year type of thing? Yes. Audio ear check for yes. your long-term surveillance? Yes, audio as well as clinical. Mm -hmm. As we start to round this out, Gauri, thank you so much. Any other final pearls or tricks, whether it's diagnosis or surgical management of clostiotoma? I think we have to individualize the surgical approach based on our clinical findings and the imaging studies. Endoscope is here to stay. So it's really a very useful tool and the instruments are improving so we can use them around the corners. So I think it's there for the long term. And then in cholestatoma, the long term surveillance is absolutely essential. Sometimes we can see recurrence as late as five to even eight years down the line, even longer. And so we do need to see these patients in the long term. And actually, that's one last question I was going to ask you. In terms of red flags on your surveillance, what are things that are going to tip you off that it's back? Foul-smelling drainage, granulation tissue, any squamous debris, especially in the mastoid tip or hard-to-see areas clinically. Does the audio ever tip you off? Is there ever changes on like the audiogram that might tip you off or is that not as common? It's mostly your exam. 
So the audiogram doesn't tip me off to the cholestatoma. The audiogram tips me off more towards worsening hearing loss. So it's more related to the ossicles or to the inner ear issues. But let's say it's a canal wall up and then I would think the audiogram would tell me that there's some destruction or fluid. Sometimes there's just middle ear effusion in these cases. So yes. Because sometimes even with cartilage, right, it's hard to get an exam if, if the drum is rebuilt with cartilage. Yes, yes. It's difficult to see. Yeah, it can be hard to tell. And then in terms of hearing aids, just for unilateral clusteotoma, when do you consider, I know insurance in the States, it's going to be different in terms of unilateral, especially for unilateral, they can be very difficult and depending on the resources. But let's say you are able to get a hearing aid or there are, the patient, family is interested. When do you consider amplification? So if we are waiting for a second stage surgery for ossicular reconstruction, then I would typically get it done after the three-month audiogram. So I would refer, especially in children, I would refer them for amplification. In adults, it is a little bit difficult because, as you mentioned, the insurance may not cover it and they may not be able to afford it. So in those cases, I may have to wait a little longer to do the ossicular reconstruction or even to offer them, say, a bone-anchored hearing aid. Well, thank you so much, Gauri. I learned so much. I appreciate all your time. If our listeners have any more questions for you or wanted to reach out to you, are you on any social media or is there a way that they can connect with you? Yes, Gopi. So thank you for having me on this podcast. I enjoyed it. And they can contact me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. Awesome. We'll make sure we put it when we release this episode as well. For all our listeners, thank you for stopping by. For our new listeners, thank you for checking us out. Our older listeners, thanks for continuing to listen. Give any suggestions, comments, everyone to come on the show or have another speaker in mind, please reach out. I think it's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.